Hello, dear listener. Thank you for downloading, streaming, and listening to the Spooky Doings podcast. My name is Rick Guzman. I'm an improv comedian from New York, and I'm getting over strep throat, so I hope I sound normal. Chelsea's not with us today, but I'm very excited to talk with writer-director Tom McLaughlin on the show, probably most well-known for Friday the 13th, Part 6. How are you today, Tom? I'm doing okay. Things are uh, nice and sunny in sunny Southern California, so... Uh... Much better than it's been of, of recent, with rains and overcast. But you know, what are we to complain? You know, most of the time we're in the sun, so I should shut the fuck up. As far as things go, there's a lot more important stuff to complain about. But we're here to have a good time. Uh, yes. And thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, I am a fan of your work, and we're going to get into some probably obscure stuff later. But what I always like to know is uh, from our guests is where... Where did horror begin in your life? Where did your affinity for that genre come from? I guess coming right out of the womb and seeing the world pretty much horrified me. Um, That's more common than you think. (laughs) I like, I've given so many different answers on this. I think my favorite really is, I was about, I don't know, four or five and I was sitting on the toilet Uh, in the bathroom and my father slowly opened the bathroom door and he had some sort of horrific mask on and as he opened it and kind of looked in and I was looking someplace else and I turned there was his face and I screamed bloody murder just shocked the hell out of me my mother came in started hitting hitting him on the back you know what are you doing that to the kid for you know and it's like it's not funny well as the years went on, it became very funny to me as I started to do the same thing to other people. Um, so there was something about the jump scare and uh, you know, getting that reaction that I found quite humorous. Then the Universal Monsters kind of came into my home uh, every night at nine o'clock. Uh, they had uh, a thing uh, called the Million Dollar Movie here in Los Angeles. And when they would... Uh, basically lease a movie to the station, they would run it every night of the week at nine o'clock. So for five nights, you could watch Frankenstein and come, you know, Saturday, you could do all the lines, you know, you knew everything about it. And the same thing with all the all the Universal Monsters. So that became a huge kind of part of me loving that world. Uh, then when I was 11, my mother had a mental breakdown. So the woman that I knew as my mom, who was very, very loving and so on, became somebody else. And that was such a shift in my reality. Um, I kind of had to stop being a kid and kind of grow up. And I suddenly had a huge uh, affinity to Edgar Allan Poe's work. And I'm now writing about, you know, lost loves and all the darkness of Poe as again, that was sort of, I guess my out. And I started to skip school and go to the uh, movie theater in uh, Santa Monica where I could take a bus instead of going to school. And they would have, you know, the Edgar Allan Poe movies that Vincent Price was in that were the Corman movies as well as the Hammer movies. So that became a huge part of me. Plus the fact that I was ditching school to do it had a, again, a really for, you know, forbidden thing about it. Um, then the Beatles and the Stones and all the groups hit and I kind of dropped all of my movie 
love. And my dad, who was a USC film student, who really thought I was going to basically kind of inherit his dreams and go on, I became a rock and roller. And uh, that was sort of like getting, I don't I want to say rebellion. I mean, the main thing is the girls loved it. I mean, I'd be on stage and they'd scream and yell and do all the stuff that you wanted girls to do when you're a teenager. So that kind of took me away. And then I went to Paris to study how to be a better physical performer on stage. I wanted to be able to do things that, you know, Mick Jagger wasn't doing or James Brown or any of the people I thought were incredible performers. And so I studied mime. And while I was there, I went down into the catacombs and got my first sort of supernatural fear uh, element that came into my life where it's like, okay, there's nobody here chasing me. There's no monster. There's no serial killer. It's just bones and skulls and stuff. But that was the influence to where I did One Dark Night from, you know, that that feeling and uh, kind of that was, you know, my kind of finally entrance into officially being a horror filmmaker. Yeah, there's a, a lot of similarities there. Uh, first of all, uh, my sympathies uh, for you regarding your mom. I, I had something similar uh, with my grandmother several years ago that uh, horror helped deal with. And strangely enough, improv comedy as well, when she would yeah. wonder about things that I knew weren't real at the time, I would just yes and it. And it would give her some level of comfort because yeah. other people would just argue that's not real. You're not seeing the thing. I'm like, no, no, no. I, I, I know this little boy that you're worried about. I saw him on the avenue the other day. He was on his way to work. He said, I'll call you next week. He's just a little busy. And that gave her some semblance of peace. Um, but also, yeah, the, the connection between uh, rock and roll or heavy metal and horror, it, it is very tightly rooted, uh, particularly mm -hmm. in, in uh, Friday 6 with the Alice Cooper. There is that nice mixture therein it's, it's kind of like uh, at first you know you got chocolate in my peanut butter how dare you and then you find something delicious there and also yeah. uh the the appeal of of young ladies so coming into your work uh while i was going through puberty certainly uh helped build my affinity for you even if i may not have been paying as close attention to writers or directors at that time but then going backwards i'm like oh this person's involved with all of that yeah. Well, yeah, the thing uh, that I, as a filmmaker, have always felt that, you know, if you do it right, people should feel like they know you at the end of a, a particular movie. And of course, in something like horror or like a Jason movie, for instance, it's like, what is there to know? Well, my sense of humor came through that. I would they they allowed me to do that. They gave me such creative control that I could make a monster movie. So it wasn't a slasher movie. It really was the beginning of Jason as a monster, unkillable Frankenstein type monster. I always go, look, he's not a zombie. <laughs> he's resurrected dead, you know, and he doesn't go and, you know, eat brains or, you know, and I even had the sheriff shoot him in the head and that didn't stop him. So, you know, to me, you know, I was trying to just create an unstoppable monster, which is all those universal things. And the sense of humor was literally, literally those movies that I love from the 30s and 40s where people had slang that they used, wise guy slang and stuff, and cast people that I could give them something to do, and they might come up with something even better on their own. Like Benny, who was the uh, Derek, uh, deputy, 
you know, came up with this thing about yabang. And I mean, I love that. And yabang, I've seen it on t-shirts. I've seen guys with tattoos, you know, and for Vinny to love that because it's something that, you know, he came up with being a Chicago guy and, you know, worked it in. And, you know, Tom Fridley doing the the story uh, for the, the boys about the Indian, you know, chief and all that. Again, totally improvised, but that's exactly the kind of thing I wanted. I wanted to get, you know, the people, the characters that you hired to give a side of themselves. And then, you know, I loved the first movie my dad took me to was Dr. No, James Bond. So the opening has that Bond, Jason thing. And that was for two reasons. One, my great affection for that. And second, that was the biggest franchise that we had at that time was the Bond movies. And Friday the 13th was kind of heading up that path, you know, going into the sixth one. So I thought, why not, you know, tell people right at the top of the show, you're going to have some fun with this. It's not going to just be set out to be a scary, uh, you know, slasher movie. It's going to have much more of a sense of humor and bringing in children, bringing in underwater fight, car chases, all this stuff. I just wanted it to feel more like a movie than, you know, just really kind of a one note man with knife who kills women kind of thing. It does convey that message with that little James Bond uh, homage right before the credits roll. And uh, your mentioning of the universal monsters that is seen throughout the movie, what with lightning resurrecting Jason. And I believe there's a, a general store named Karloff. So that imprint yeah. is on there. But yeah. you know, how did this assignment come to you as the writer? How did you get that opportunity? Um, mainly Frank Mancuso Jr., who was in charge of these movies at Paramount, as well as, you know, other films, um, they released part five. Uh, the fans were not happy that it wasn't Jason at the end of the movie. Um, they made the movie because obviously the final chapter did so well. It's like, well, we can't, you know, <laughs> ditch this guy quite yet. So the idea there, there's was, money to be made. Yeah, so let's just do a Jason movie, but hey, guess what? No, he is dead, and this guy's imitating him. And then, on top of that, they were suggesting that Tommy Jarvis might be the next Jason when he put on the mask, and he was looking so dark. And instead of two years before the next Jason movie, which is what they standardly did, one year, they went, we got to fix this, you know, get this, you know, back on course. So, um Frank had seen my One Dark Night. He loved the whole kind of gothic horror approach that I took and said, you know, would you like to do this? And I kind of did, you know, because I was trying to get this kind of Frank Capra movie made that I had been working on for years and actually had kind of Frank Capra as my mentor as I was doing the script and, and going through all this. Um, but I said, well, if I can put comedy in it and make it different from the other ones. And it's like, look, you figure out how to bring back Jason. I said, well, that's simple. I'm just going to steal from Frankenstein. <laughs> and I'll, like you mentioned, Carlos Market, I'm going to call myself out on it. And I'm going to have Cunningham Road and I'm going to have Carpenter, you know, Road and all, all the things that the audience needs to know that it's funny. We don't and, steal, Tom. We liberate in the revolutionary spirit. We steal. You know, <laughs> Hack, hacks borrow, artists steal. I want to consider myself an artist. So okay, fair, fair. But um, the, the he saw the movie. He said, you know, if you want to do that, I went to the what's now the Hollywood Forever Cemetery and uh, wrote a, a treatment for it fairly quickly and turned it in. And they went great so I in the cemetery that's pretty goth 
on the other side of uh, the wall from Paramount. So it was just like, you know, going out the gate and going around into the other gate. Uh, so it was, it was all sort of, you know, perfect. And of course, that's where my crypt is now in the mausoleum there at Hollywood forever. So I'm, I'm still on the territory once I, once I go wherever the hell I'm going to go. But um, yeah, it all kind of came out of that. And, and he was so encouraging. And I was fortunate that they were in a position where it's like, somebody do something to get our audience back. And the one thing they didn't do that, that didn't help, uh, they didn't predict that Aliens, the James Cameron movie, uh, had opened the week before and it was going to be such a kick-ass, you know, great movie that the second week, of course, you know, it's going to do, con con continue to do great business. And for a lot of people, it's like, you know, oh, you got to go see, you know, the aliens. No, it's going to go see Friday. No, fuck that. It's going to, you know, it's going to suck. But just go to, so, it, you know, we came in number two instead of number one, but I completely understood why. And it just, you know, it was that thing of, well, they really wanted us to do much better. Yet they also knew that they were bucking up against disappointment from the time before word of mouth had to, you know, carry it. And opening weekend, that's what they judge everything on is like, you know, how big did it open? How badly do people want to see it? And I probably would have been in that same camp. It's like, nah, let's go see Aliens again. You know, if I, I always learn from really good movies and, and you know, so many of the, you know, Exorcist and obviously the original Halloween um, Alien, I, all these things were the things that, you know, were coming at me at that time when I was up and coming filmmaker. So those were the influences and you know you would go and see these things as many times as you could because once they were gone they were gone you know there was no streaming there was no dvds or betas or vhs's or anything and they were that was just starting to finally happen very few vhs's and that that's where i first saw uh yeah the majority of the Friday the 13th film just making my way through each one and and loving every moment of it but I do wonder, I mean, the day job for me is set dressing and props, so I know a little bit about the business, but not the mechanics and the stress of having that opening weekend. But however, last year I was at the Mahonic Drive-In where you were at as well for Camp Blood. Oh, you were there? Screened, oh. uh, yes, where they screened Friday 6th. That was my first trip to the Mahonic. So yeah. years later, how'd that feel for you to see uh, on a big outdoor screen with basically uh, what, what I like to call mi gente, our people, um, all there in that environment, loving the movie, people walking around dressed up as Jason, some people that bring their dogs to the drive-in, those dogs barking at Jason as he wanders about in the dark. Uh, what was that experience <laughs> like for you? I love that place. I mean, absolutely love what they do, what they've been doing for a while, that the the people got behind them to make sure that didn't get closed down. It, it's just such a great success story. Um, and a drive-in, you know, was always the place where these things had done well from the fifties on. It, it was, of course, in those days, you didn't really go to watch the movie. You, that was your excuse to go, but you know, you were, you were there to get some action. Um, and we were in that wonderful world and get as many guys into the trunk as you could, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just one you know one please and you drive in and then eight <clears> people <throat> come out um so i mean and then even i had a drive in close to my house um and as kids we'd sit up on the wall we couldn't hear anything but we could watch it you know on, on a friday or saturday night so 
to, to think that that was all going to go away was very sad. And then you see something like this, where not only do they do it great, they do it with, you know, movies that you may have never had a chance to see on a big screen like that, or in that drive-in environment, which is like, it, it's kind of a rock, rock concert, you know, in a way, a weird way, just the vibe of it, you know, the, the way people, you know, talk to each other and it's like, and share, you know, uh, stories and the first time they saw this or yeah, it's just great. You know, I love that place. And it was so much fun, you know, to, to meet people there and, and all of us, you know, it's, it's like, I always think of us like in from the uh, Todd Brown Brownings, the freaks, um, freaks, because, you know, it's like one of us, one of us, we see each other and, it, and it's all like, we're part of this camp of like misfits and people that, you know, were picked on or, you know, called names, you know, because, you know, you were gay or you were black or even a woman that loved horror was a little freaky. But you go to these conventions and these things, it's like, no, we're all part of that same thing. We all feel like no one really liked us, but we could relate to the monsters in this. And here we're all together celebrating, you know, these people that help get us through all these these trials of life. It was a hell of an experience, not just because uh, I never went to a drive-in before the pandemic. So then in, there weren't any where I grew up in New York. And so in looking for safe things to do with my girlfriend, it's like, all right, let's take this little trip. And we heard about this place. It's like, that's outdoors. It's safe. We can relax and have a good time. And then to see all of your people together, as noted by their t-shirts or their tattoos, it's like... Mm -hmm. We're not a gang, but we're cl we're close to extended family in a roundabout oh, yeah. kind of way, and that was a good feeling. And especially seeing uh, your film on the big screen like that, and the mixture of horror and comedy, which you know, as an improviser with uh, my show that puts that together, it's another chocolate and peanut butter kind of situation. And to see uh, the uh, the cemetery caretaker looking right down the barrel of the camera lens going some people got a sick idea of a sick sense of humor on that's not verbatim you probably know better than i do but strange, yeah, it, idea. It, strange idea of entertainment yes, <laughs> yes. It, it, it's 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 accusatory but also welcoming simultaneously yeah and uh, the interesting thing about that as well is that um not only that end up being the name of the book that Joe Madri did on on my life and films and stuff, you know, it was the thing that probably got us more good reviews than bad reviews because a lot of the smart critics basically goes, look, you know, I never liked these. They are what they are. But I got to say, any movie that can look at us and look at its audience and, you know, kind of call us out for having a strange idea of entertainment I can't hate, you know, and they loved that sense of humor that went through it. I was scared to death of it. I thought the fans, you know, might not go for that. And they were already pissed off on the previous thing. I certainly didn't want to bury, you know, the movie, the series with this movie. But at the same time, I went, what, do, what would I want to see at this point? You know, and I tried to do as much of that as I could with it. But Again, you never know with a fan base, mm -hmm. you know, they, you know, it certainly had people say, where was the nudity? I didn't see any tits. You know, where's the tits? And, you know, I always say, you want to see tits? There you go. There you go. <laughs> so what? I mean, it's like, I want to do a comedy sequence with that, you know, as much as I'd love to see the bouncing boobies like anybody else. I know what I'd be looking at. And I, the comedy would not be the same. <laughs> so, but it turned out I had written that scene for Darcy to be topless 
And on the day she said, I'm kind of uncomfortable. Do you have to have that? And I went, it is not to, you know, for me to say, no, I got to see a girl with her top off. I've seen plenty. As far as I'm concerned, the comedy will play better, leave it alone. And we've gotten, you know, it's, it's, amer- it's amazing that for a lot of people, Jason Lives is sort of the entry-level drug into the series. Why? Well, I mean, it still has profanity. It's still got violence. The violence is, I've made it superhuman. You know, you can't punch out a heart like you can slit somebody's throat in real life. I did a lot of things like that. But the, the main thing was that people, you know, go, oh, yeah, it's okay for my six-year-old to see it's got no nudity. It's like, really? You Syria? I mean, <laughs> that's, but that's so American. I mean, you know, you go to other countries and, you know, on, on the on the one sheet, you know, or on the on the lobby cards, you know, they're showing naked women. It's like, and kids look at it. It's like no big deal. It's like at at beaches in Europe, it's just humanity. Here in America, I don't know the problem. Uh, Granted, uh, going seeing this movie for the first time in my teen years, yes, I wanted the nudity, but I wasn't disappointed at not having because during that sex scene, it's kind of funnier considering not only the dialogue and the music, but how much clothes they're wearing that adds to the laughter and just like yeah. hold on until the song's over how more yeah. about 10 more minutes it's the extended dance mix like okay yeah well to me some of the best at least i gotta say sex that i've had over the many years that i've been performing the act are those things where you cannot get all the clothes off in time you know you, you know the old uh fatal attraction in the elevator and you get the panties down and the pants down and that's it and you're at it you know um on the sink on you know the postman always rings twice on the kitchen table you know all of that stuff you know you know when you're young it's like as quick as you can get in that back seat and get going there still is an incredible amount of sexuality about that but somehow you know it's become sort of a mainstream acceptance that if you're doing exploitive horror movie you have to also exploit you know women and somehow guys don't want to look at another guy's dick so it's like oh that's okay we'll spend <laughs> so, but I do want to see everything else on the girl so it, it's kind of an accepted part of, of the cliche of doing these things and then of course there was that thing about well no you you have to get killed because you're having sex and so there's a moral thing here mm-hmm. and that just kind of came out of I think fans or somebody bringing that up at one point and then that sort of became the thing and I went I don't sorry I'm not buying that you know Jason's you know if you're in his way and he's got an agenda like he does on mine to get to Tommy you just if you're unfortunate you're on that road in front of him or at that camp that he goes back looking you know you're in trouble so the sex element i just put it in because i knew i could do something funny with a bouncing motorhome and and that you know the joke is she wants she's you know she's ready to go as long as the song is and you know he's he's ready to go right now so you know and, and i guess it also is the right call to make as a filmmaker to not make your cast feel uncomfortable. It's like, all right, we don't have to do this, but we do have to get the shot. So let's stay dressed. Let's have fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, to Darcy over all these years has, has always comes back and says, you know, how much she appreciated that I was being, you know, respectful to her about that. And, you know, all of us are still friends. I mean, it, it's so bizarre. Um, tell you, I mean, 36 years now, I mean, CJ and Tom Matthews and Darcy and Tom Fridley, I mean, everybody in that cast we still stay in contact with each other if it's not facebook messaging you know it's texting obviously we see each other at the conventions when that comes up but there's just 
you know, it's a it's family, and that doesn't happen very often, you know, on movies. You know, you always say that at the end of the movie or TV series, you know, oh yeah, we gotta like keep in touch and and you know, usually you get on and you have a new family and then another one and maybe you run into each other, but we've really of all the movies I've done, which is you know, 42 at this point, this is the one that really was the most popular and you know, the most family. Did you have any particular techniques to keep morale up during long night shoots because i've noticed uh when i've been on night shoots uh, everyone always says the old adage of it's darkest before the dawn i find it's the coldest before the dawn and that's yeah. when i'm just <laughs> looking for crafty in case they have coffee less so how, yeah. how do you keep spirits up and running when it's you know 345 and everybody just wants to be done for the night well there's two Two ways to me. One is trying to have a sense of humor throughout the night and encourage other people to, you know, by by you know teasing and and uh, you know playing around that we we go that, that you know this this director's one of us. You know, I'll stand in the back of the food line with everybody else, and the ads are going. No, you got to eat first. It's like no, I'm staying here. I'm going with everybody else. The last man is when you start setting the. You know, we got a half hour, as you know. You know, I, I said, I, I don't want people to feel there's any division between that. And if a, somebody from craft service hollers out a funny idea, which has happened in, you know, a couple of my movies, it's like, there's the smartest man on the crew. I'm using that idea. That's great. You know, full credit. And it's just having that sort of team mentality. Now, not everybody's going to feel that way. You know, if you're up on that lift, you know, and you're trimming, you know, the big um, arc light like that we were using then. You can hardly wait to get down and get into some warm bed someplace. So a lot of that that doesn't go very far there. But it's as I said, trying to keep the energy up, trying to keep moving. And I mean, I just this last weekend, um, I was in uh, Alabama, um, about three hours from Birmingham, in a cemetery from the turn of the century and the road. And I was playing this kind of dark, weird, I mean, basically, you know, it was like a, a creepy old man character. And it had been a while since I'd been in 29 degree weather, you know, and everybody else was literally half my age. And I love that because as far as I'm concerned, my energy and my thinking is still the same as the 20 year old actors and the 30 year old crew. And it was just fun. I mean, you know, we were freezing. We used everything we could to keep ourselves warm, but we're making a movie. And uh, I just love to see that that still goes on, you know, that that passion, because it's never left me in, in all these years. And, you know, it, it, as difficult as it was, you know, shooting all nights like that, it, I, I cannot complain. I was, I felt blessed that I was getting a chance to do that. And the kid in me was like, I get to play a monster or, or essentially a very unpleasant looking individual who actually is a good person and you don't realize it until you know as, as the scenes go on that he's actually got a, a more positive agenda than to kill you so you know all of that and having just had that happen you know I'm still sort of vibrating to the you know that the good side of our business so enjoying the good rush of it yeah um, cool I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, another uh piece of your work that I've always loved. Uh, you did Sometimes They Come Back mm -hmm. based on the Stephen King story, which I guess, if I'm not mistaken, uh, was after the success ABC had with It. And then they just started cranking out a lot of his 
adaptations to it. But this, I don't think it was a miniseries. It was just a one-shot, correct? How did you get involved yeah. in that? And this was CBS. Um, CBS. I don't know if CBS, I mean, the fans out there would know better than I do with what other movies, uh, Stephen King movies were on CBS or NBC. But I know ABC was pretty much the go-to, you know, for The Stand and, you know, all the all of those things that were being done. Um, but yeah, it was... Uh, it was Dino De Laurentiis, who I had done Date with an Angel with, which was the movie I did after Friday. Um, and then, you know, this was the next thing. And it was a Stephen King story that he had for a long time. And I guess they were going to make it part of, I think originally Cat Eye was going to be like an anthology. It was going to be that. Or maybe it was. I can't remember. <laughs> but it was supposed to be part of that. And then somehow they felt it would it had enough story that it could you know be its own thing, and the script you know was good but just you know it, it was important you know the that, that thing that Stephen King does so well where you feel so personally involved with the character because he writes in that kind of you know first person you know narrative where you you're in the person's head and which makes it hard on a lot of his movies to translate to the screen um dead zone and they're just you know shawshank a lot of the ones that are really good movies somehow work that way other ones that you know for me cat eye didn't quite work the way i think it could have and some of the other ones it's just hard to really unless you do constant narration you know to get that relationship between the character and the plot on these things but uh, we brought in another writer and started working on it and got much more of a I felt grounded you know Tim Matheson's character coming back to a town that that where tragedy had happened early on in his life and then being harassed by these bullies you know 50s kind of bullies and as Stephen King said about it, it sort of was like all Stephen King's greatest hits. You know, there's a little bit of Christine in there with the cars, you know, a little bit of the stand by me aspect to a bunch of things that that they kind of pulled to make this short story feel a little more like a feature. But I, you know, as the years have gone on, it's become certainly one of my favorites of what I did because I did it kind of in a fog. Um, my father had just died. My daughter had just been born. Uh, Mick Garris and I had created uh, these two TV series, She-Wolf of London, and they came from outer space. We had the people that with, you know, 20 writers and 20 directors and the other show, same thing, 20 writers, 20 directors. And I was directing a five camera show, uh, my best friend, Stephen Banks, uh, Home Entertainment Center for uh, Showtime and uh, Disney. So I, I was just in an emotional and creative whirlwind when that was the next thing on my plate that I sort of went into. And we had a crew that was made up of people because we shot in Kansas, a few locals, people from Chicago, people from New Orleans, people from Texas, people from L.A. So nobody was like like a bonded group that had worked together. So there was a lot of difficulties with communications and the transportation got pissed off at I guess the producers and walked off the show one day and left all the stuff at somebody some other location and people were falling down getting hurt Brooke Adams twisted her ankle we had you know I don't know how many feet of snow the first day and it wasn't supposed to snow at all in November so it, we were just plagued with problems but somehow we got through this thing uh, and the music that Terry Palmieri wrote for the score just had such a haunting 
quality to it that, you know, to this day I go, and I want somebody to play that melody at my funeral. There's just something <laughs> that such a part of me kind of came through that when we were working on the on the uh, theme together that, you know, it and as I said, it's a it was a TV movie, but it was also released as a, a cinemascope widescreen movie in Europe. So because of that, you know, it actually spawned two sequels, you know, um, sometimes they come back again and sometimes they come back for more um, of which I didn't do because I made a deal with Dino that, you know, I get paid double for this, forget sequels because I didn't think there would ever be a sequel to a TV movie. I didn't think about, you know, the European market, but, you know, I, I loved him. You know, we were so kind of close with the movie and afterwards and Brooke was always a guilty pleasure of mine from Days of Heaven, and um, obviously uh, the the uh, uh, I want to say Firestarter, no, uh, Dead Zone, and just yes. you know, getting a chance to work with her and Robert Russler as the villain. All those guys were just terrific. It really, as as much as I said, I kind of was in a fog doing it. Everything just sort of came together despite all the difficulties. And of course, then we find out we were actually shooting on ancient Indian burial ground, which is classic Stephen King story. Uh, but yeah, we had no idea that tunnel was actually was actually a, a, a cemetery at one point, and they, you know, took away the tombstones like poltergeist, but didn't take out the Indian bodies and ran through there. And people told me literally it was at the very end of the shoot that somebody said, you know. Had any trouble on this show because people usually <laughs> have bad luck around here, you know, with that, you know, shooting on this land. And, but uh, there was one day where literally Tim Matheson was he was laying on the ground after we did the stunt where he hits the ground and he got up and within two seconds, this boulder about this big fell from the top of that <laughs> tunnel and bam, right literally where his head was. And I was like, holy shit, boy, talk about a close one. That that does sound very concerning, <laughs> um, more so than than Robert Russler and his uh, greaser bunch. But I always liked Mr. Russler. He always had that that good handsome aspect to him. But for yeah. a period in the eighties, oh, he just played such a dick so well. And 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 I always admire the people that play villains that can get me as an audience member to hate that character enough because I know they're playing a character. Not really them. That's fine. But you've made me feel emotions, and that's the important thing. I am glad yeah. that you brought up two other uh, shows that I loved. That in doing research for you, I'm like, oh, you did those too. And those were they came from outer space and She Wolf of London. So to have all of that going on at the same time, again, that mixture of horror and comedy sounds overwhelming. But I'm thankful that you went through that because it provided a lot of entertainment. Yeah. Well, the other thing I'm incredibly proud of is my friend Stephen Banks' one-man show, uh, Stephen Banks Home Entertainment Center. Um, if any of you guys, you know, I, I think it's still on Hulu. Um, I'm pretty sure it's on um, Amazon, I think, believe. But it's, you know, we, we, we had, he had the show and we took it to San Francisco and we rest, we worked on it so that the laughs just kept coming through it. And it, it was just great to sit in, the, in an audience and, and, you know, with notes night after night and improving things and stuff. 
And he's enormously talented, plays all these instruments. And the premise is so simple and so relatable to people, which is you have one task you need to do for work. In this case, write a particular speech for something that has to be you know, spoken the next day. And he's a classic procrastinator. Anything that, that he starts to do, something gets in his head and he starts doing it, whether it's trying to knock pencils that he's working with out through a window or picking up a musical instrument or deciding to make cookies, which he did in the show, you know, literally, you know, bake them and you could, the theater's filled with the smell of chocolate chip cookies. There was just so many, you know, wonderfully inventive things that, you know, we came up with this show. So shooting it, you know, was, was great fun. And, and the fact that it's got, you know, so many fans still, um, to it. And that, that was, again, all part of that same, you know, I mean, I had to direct why my dad was dying. And even the day of his funeral, I had to come and, you know, go to the, the to the funeral and then go back to the soundstage, you know, to, to, you know, do the taping. So it was a crazy period of my life. But as I said, so much, so much was kind of happening all at once that you just, you know, if you can get through it, you know, you've won, you know, and that's all that matters is just finish it and you see if any of it is any good. And in fact, a few things really did pop out. It was incredible. Yeah, I just looked it up. It's currently available on Prime and Tubi. So I'm definitely going to check that out because... Yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll love it. I mean, it, it really is, you know, a real keep a smile on your face kind of thing. You know, he, he's very funny and very inventive. And uh, as I said... I, we wanted to do it like the classic silent movies things where it was like one gag after another and the songs are funny what they're about and stuff so yeah i think you guys if you check it out you know i think you'll you'll have a good time i intend to i intend to but back to the other uh shows that you mentioned um how did that collaboration with mick garris come about and the creation of she wolf of london because admittedly had a tremendous crush on kate hodge um, oh yeah and I do always feel that the werewolf genre sometimes needs a good like jump start or kick in the ass every once in a while. It doesn't have as much emphasis or 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 uh, I'll say productivity for lack of a better term as something like werewolves here and there. So every time I find a werewolf story I love, I definitely gravitate towards it. So have that one come about, please. Um, well, Mick and I became friends almost instantly, like a brotherhood. There's a very similar look to both of us, you know, that is true. angular and the, and the long hair and the noses and stuff. And he came uh, after my One Dark Night played uh, at, uh, I guess it was USC, where there was a screening for the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror. Um, he had not made a movie yet. He was a huge horror fan. He was interviewing all these incredible people and doing documentaries on like the thing and, you know, everything that was kind of out during those, that eighties period. And um, so we headed off and, and uh, his wife, Cynthia and, and, and my wife, Nancy, at that time when, you know, we went places and things. And then when Mick would get opportunities of something come in, like amazing stories, you know, here, let's us write one together. And then the same thing, he's working on a show called The Others, uh, you know, another Spielberg thing that, that you know, we did, uh, I did a directing thing on. And then Universal uh, 
came, the television department came to us and said, we've got all these titles and we're thinking of making a series out of one of these, you know, pick something. So the thing both Mick and I gravitated to immediately was American Werewolf in London. And knowing John Landis and stuff, we thought, you know, how great this would be to just kind of take that premise and make it a, you know, a weekly thing. You know, how do you cure your werewolf, werewolfism, you know, and who you get involved with and all that. So we went to John and, uh, you know, of course, in classic John fashion, you know, he's never going to be as good as what I did. You know that. And goes, yeah, we know, we know, you know, but, you know, this is a job and stuff. All right. So. You know, we start to go into it and then we find out that Universal didn't own it. Poly Polygram did. So we had to um, abort on that. And so we went back through the archives and um, there was She-Wolf, I saw. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, She-Wolf. And so why not make it, you know, the he is she, why not make her American, same thing. And she's trying to cure this, but then came up with the idea of a British, you know, guy that, that's a professor that knows all about all this kind of stuff that can kind of, you know, try to help her at the same time we discover, you know, classic uh, British monsters or myths or whatever, you know, the bog men and different things that were not as kind of typical, you know, that, that we, we were used to. And then I said, you know, it came from outer space. I don't know where I came up with this whole crazy notion that, you know, they came from outer space and it'd be too, you know, Jim Carrey kind of guys, like a team, you know, that were actually aliens and then put them in a Corvette like Route 66 and send them off on these adventures sort of across America. And, you know, that got greenlit. So, you know, I wrote the pilot on that. And then once I kind of removed myself from the show, so much of that became something that somebody else did. And the same thing, you know, with She-Wolf, we did the, you know, the pilot that was done in England. Uh, Kate just was the sexiest and funniest, you know, person that we met, you know, and there's just like no question after she left the room, we went, that's her, <laughs> you know, and, uh, yeah, she was just great. And the same thing with Ian, uh, just, you know, just, they really had a great chemistry together and things too. Wasn't crazy when they brought it to the States for costumes yeah. and changed it to Love and Curses. It just, I don't know, there was something about that it was British that, you know, I really loved about that that whole premise. Well, around that time and, you know, being kind of a family that couldn't afford cable and the few people on the block did have it, most likely had it illegally, getting that horror fix from those syndicated shows at that time, like that, like Freddy's Nightmares, Friday the 13th, the series, it was definitely a charge, that weekly uh, treat over the weekend. Because sometimes some of those shows would be on kind of late. So it's like you're you're staying up late, but the volume's turned down because yeah, yeah. mom wants you to go to church in the morning, but you know, I'm I'm watching something spooky and I can yeah. go on in church. I know what they're gonna say tomorrow. So yeah. uh, th th those shows always have a special place in my heart. And now that I think about it, I think I gotta see if I can find uh She Wolf of London on DVD someplace. And because it's important to have physical media when streaming disappoints you. <laughs> You know, it's funny. I, I mean, I've said this countless times on, on interviews and podcasts and stuff that in the 80s, we didn't know we were making anything other than making a living and trying to make it as good as possible. I mean, there were some people that like, eh, this is Drek, I'm just going to get through it, you know, very kind of that hack mentality. But most of us really cared to make it as good as 
as we possibly could make it. And we we couldn't get around the fact that we're looking at the 70s where we were like young filmmakers that wanted to do it. And there's The Godfather and there's Star Wars and, you know, The Exorcist. I mean, you know, and Halloween is... It's like, we're never going to be as good as they were in the 70s, you know? And certainly we're not going to have the monsters of Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman from the 30s and 40s. You know, we're slumming here, you know, coming up with this stuff. But as we all know, with the advent of beta VHS, you know, DVD, all of that, you know, now all those monsters are the mainstream monsters, you know, of, of you know, Leatherface and, and Michael Myers and Chucky and... Pinhead and all those, you know, and we were shocked. I mean, all of us, it, it just never expected that. Um, and still, anytime I do interviews or go on these conventions and people are talking like they just saw the movie, it, you know, really excites them. And I go, that's 36 years ago. You weren't even fucking born, you know, or even, you know, thought in your parents' eyes or even maybe they hadn't even met yet. Um, and here it is. It's, it's, it's a, they just keep going. I mean, and people have seen gremlins, you know, for the first time. It's like, whoa, you know. So this discovery of these things and the loyalty of the fan base uh, for those 80s movies is just something we never, ever predict. Because you can't remember in those days, too, you, you know, you put a horror movie on, all the fans would go and see it, you know, if it was, you know, sensational, you know, in some way that it, you know, somehow, uh, you know, was like The Shining or... Exorcist, um, or um, uh, what was the other big one? Uh, uh, David Seltzer wrote uh, about the devil as a kid. Um, the Omen. Yes. I mean, those things, you know, those carried on, but all the rest of us, shot, you know, schmucks, movie would open next week, maybe hold on to a good number of theaters. By the third week, it's like, the drive-ins and buttfuck God knows where, you know, played it. And here in LA, downtown, there'd be like these movie theaters that had fallen in disrepair and they'd have like three horror movies on, you know, for a buck and a half. And you could stay there, you know, all evening and watch this stuff. And usually very bad prints that were, you know, chopped up and stuff. But that was kind of, you know, that's what you were looking at, the lifespan. And obviously with video and all that, it changed all of that. And most people, have seen these things at home, you know, late at night, like, you know, you're doing snuck to see them, me ditching school to go see those movies, you know, when I'm supposed to be in school. It added to the magic of this. This isn't something you're supposed to be doing, but isn't it exciting, you know, kind of thing. And it's, I love that. I even say it adds to the magic of simultaneously making it immortal, but keeping it forever young, preserved in yeah. that amber for the fans that is like all right that's it's it's there it's that little gem for each of us that we hold very dearly and uh, i'm a big believer in giving people their flowers when they're around so thank you very much for your part and uh, in my yeah. horror journey that's made it fun yeah i mean we're all really sincere when we say you know if it wasn't for the fans when you know it sounds like a cliche but it is it is really true i mean those of us who who know how we felt, you know, and I say this all the time, particularly, you know, when when I had to get into that world of, you know, the conventions, you know, people have to pay for autographs. And that has always bothered me because to me, that's 
you know, them, them's going, I think you're great. Would you sign this? And it's like, you know, it's like, great. You know, but now it's gotten to an enormous level. I mean, some of the bigger stars, you know, they get, you know, $100, $200 a signature. If they're getting the full costume, like Robert England, I don't know how much he charges, but my Jason C.J. Graham, I know charges quite a bit to get pictures in there and signed and stuff. And yet if James Whale, you know, or anybody from that period, I would I would pay whatever it was. I would get on a bus if I couldn't drive and get, you know, so I there's a part of me that goes, yeah, and this is a lot of people, this is their livelihood. You know, this is how they go from convention to convention and get a chance to, you know, meet people and, and hear all that great stuff. And a couple of times when I did sign something for free, it would always come back, you know, hey, dude, hey, give me a break, you know, don't do that because they come over to me and say, how come I, you know, I don't give it to you for free, you know, you're, you're, you're messing with my livelihood, you know, and I go, I, I, sorry, I, <laughs> some people, I just feel bad, they don't have that roll of cash when they go into there to do that, and, it, you know, it just, that's the part that just, you know, bothers me, and as I said, if I, if I see people outside of that, I always sign things, or people, send something to me it's how much it goes nothing you, know, you send me just a you know uh, envelope with a return postage on it so that i don't have to go to the post office and stand in line for an hour to do this i'm more than happy to send you know send it back um and it's like why not i i, I still feel very very blessed that you know people care and, and we certainly do um now, you mentioned one last thing, and you may not have an answer for this question, but I'm just curious. With the your your Friday the 13th film remaining as a family, uh, do you have any any ears up in the air to hear about uh, what's happening now with the, the legal issues of if we might have some more Jason in the future? And would you be interested in maybe revisiting Crystal Lake at some point? So you're not caught up with all the most current news on all this? I'm a it. little bit odd in the sense of, I know that if something comes out that I'm going to want to see, uh, yeah. like another Friday the 13th movie or a Marvel movie or Jordan Peele, Quentin Tarantino, those filmmakers that I love, I like to go in as cold as possible and know nothing. Like Halloween ends, didn't want to see a preview because I know I'm going to go see it. So yeah. I'm like, just don't show me anything and I'll figure it out when I'm in the theater. So yeah, like that, that's just my curiosity. Like has, has something been resolved? And if it were, would you want to revisit and bring the, the family back together? All right. Let me see if I can take a number of years and condense them into cliff notes here for you. Sure. <laughs> it's a long story. I know. Back here, ladies and gentlemen, that is the diary of Pamela Voorhees. That mm -hmm. is the, from the time Pamela is a 16 year old pregnant girl goes to a, you know, clinic or country, you know, like a country hospital place and has Jason and out comes this deformed, mentally challenged little boy. It is their story from his birth to when they walk through into Camp Crystal Lake in 1956. So it's 40, 1946 to 1956, the first 10 years of Pamela Voorhees and her son. How Jason has become the monster that we eventually see, what influenced that. And of course, it's Pamela going from somebody who was already at a horrible upbringing, 
uh, a little bit of the Carrie having religious kind of religion kind of beaten into her. So she has a great resentment towards that. And she's already a sociopath in her behavior because of all that confusion and things where she can be the nicest person in the world. And then when she turns dark, look out. And if anybody says anything about her son, the way he looks, the way he acts, it doesn't take long for her to come up with a plot to get rid of them. And Jason watches these absolutely brutal murders. And afterwards, soaked in blood, she's embracing her son saying, you understand these are bad people, Jason. And if we don't get rid of them, they're gonna do same thing to other people. So we're doing something very important, you know, and, and you know, oh, I love you. So fills him with this, you know, love and encouragement. And they are two, basically, you know, she's like a female serial killer that we haven't heard much about from the late forties to the early fifties. And then they kind of disappeared into God knows where, I don't, yeah, we were hearing about them. And this is post-World War II, where the country, we were worried about the Russians are going to bomb us. We were making, you know, fall, you know, bomb shelters. Communism was going to take over, the Red Scare. Anybody comes into town that was different or unusual, I think they're communists. What does that mean? You know, you've been hearing about the communists. So it was a great, for me, and, and uh, James Sweet, who actually... Uh, co-wrote and directed uh, Jason Rising, the, the uh, fan film, uh, we've been putting it together for a year and a half. Prior to that, I wrote Jason Never Dies, which is a sequel to my Friday the 13th. 13 years after I put Jason down in Crystal Lake, I wanted to have a story. 13 years later, there is something that happens, basically almost the biblical proportions, but not quite, but it's a huge opening that gets Jason out of the bottom of frozen Crystal Lake out and has a new agenda with a group of girls who are all mid-teens, high school, Catholic, on a spiritual retreat at Camp Christian Lake, which is across the lake from <laughs> the Crystal Lake camp. And this is kills in, snowed in, almost like John Carpenter's The Thing, where they're complete, they have no place they can go, you know, and if they run very easy, just like in The Shining to follow the footsteps. So they've got to be somehow clever enough to try to get away from Jason. And they are kick-ass girls. All of them have some vice, something that put them into the spiritual retreat with this Irish nun who is, you know, as sick as, you know, uh, Nurse Ratchet, you know, in Cuckoo's Nest. So, you know, we've got this thing, that was gonna go in the direction of um, Victor Miller, who was gonna get the characters and he can't do the mask, Jason. Sean Cunningham can do the mask, Jason, um, but he needs Victor's permission. So for nine years, these guys have been battling it out and basically they hate each other. You know, Victor wanted Jason to not be that masked Jason. Sean even didn't want it to be the masked Jason. Uh, tried to change all that with Jason Goes to Hell. And they've had two very high power uh, lawyers. So finally, the settlement came. I, I, I would say now it's been a, almost a year, and they've been trying to work out who gets how much and what, you know. So James and I have been pedal to the metal, getting putting this whole thing together, you know, the script as we were doing it, we went, my God, there's a lot of story here that we can be doing. 
this should be like a limited series. You know, we easily can do eight hours on this and maybe even make it into like the Bates Motel, you know, a much longer mother and son story, completely different, obviously, than Norman and his mother. But that same idea that strange characters, strange situations, and incredibly intense murders. Halloween morning, the 31st of October, out comes Crystal Lake, you know, show run uh, by Brian Fuller, who did uh, Hannibal. Jason, uh, I mean, uh, Victor Miller is a part of it. His lawyer, who's also a producer, is part of it. The part of the original uh, money people for uh, the, the original Friday the 13th and on through. And um, it's A24, which are doing the classier horror movies right now, to be a series starting with the backstory of Jason and his mom on through all the movies um, on uh, Peacock, which is NBC. So both James and I have been in kind of a, a state of shock because <laughs> it's like we put so much work into it. I announced this thing maybe almost a year ago that we were doing this, um, hoping that something would happen, you know, that we could get in in time. You know, we couldn't talk to anybody about it because they didn't know which way it was going to go. So we we sort of went, you know, right up against the wall. Uh, what is the day of the 19th? 20 days ago. And uh, so I just talked to him again today. And we're talking about a couple of possible other things we're going to try. Um, whether we actually get involved in this because Victor's got all the eggs in his basket. Sean's got all the masked stuff in his basket as a feature, but they can do the hockey mask as a TV series. So right now it's sort of this, what are they gonna do? You know, how are they gonna do it? But their publicity is already starting. So the fans are going to get Crystal Lake. That is a reality that is gonna happen probably maybe summer of next year uh, or fall, you know, before they announce it. And those of us who are created things, we're kind of in that, well, do we, see if we can jump on that ship or see if we can do something else with all the all the work we put together. Um, and I went at these things very strongly to say, my Jason was something, you know, my Jason Liz was something that was different from the others. And I took great pride in saying, I want to freshen this up. And the same thing with our approaches on these two things. We never saw mother and son. We never saw like in the forties and fifties when there was a whole different climate to set this in. Um, I wanted it to be like very believable characters. There's no supernatural aspects at all to that. The Jason Never Dies, that is much more full-on gothic, you know, bigger than life, you know, but the characters aren't savvy to who Jason is. You know, they've come from another state. And so there's none of the stuff like having Jason lives where they're going, oh, you know about Jason, don't you? Yeah, sure, Jason is. No, they're like, who the fuck is this kind of attitude that's doing this? And, you know, the kills are are pretty intense and, you know, very much in the Jason, you know, classic Jason fashion of the way sort of I'm going where there's super intense, you know, with what he's capable of. So here I am, you know, I don't own the rights to any of this stuff. So it's not like I can just go and do my own version. Um, the fans have been doing this amazing job of, you know, funding these Jason franchise movies and some of them are 
really good. I mean, they've got some incredible things. Some are. Some got some good ideas and, you know, not not 100% fleshed out, but, you know, they've got buck and a half to do them, you know, and they do <laughs> they do the best they can. A buck and a half and a lot of heart. Admittedly, as a former Catholic school student, you mentioning Jason at a Catholic school on Camp Christian Lake, uh, I, I just wanted to throw money at that and buy a ticket. I got to admit that. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Yeah, like you, I mean, I was raised. Uh, my mother wanted me a wanted me to be a priest. My father oh, was in the seminary for eight years when he decided, no, I'm a magician and a fire eater. I'm not a priest. And his parents, you know, pretty much disowned him. Never liked my mother as a result of that. Um, but yeah, I grew up with all of that. And so, if you look pretty much in all my work, there's some, you know take the boy out of the church, but you can't take the church out of the boy thing. And I no thought- No matter how much hard we try. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I had some nuns and some, some of the Irish nuns, as I said, were like Nurse Ratchet. They they were justified to smack you across the room, stick you in the corner with your arms up, you know, and don't you dare, boy, lower those arms. Or the Jesuit brothers that I had through high school that, you know, we had floggings. I mean, literally <laughs> take it to the center of the gym, you know, pull down your gym shorts and hit you with this like hockey stick, you know, it was everybody, girls and guys would go, ooh, you know, in the in the stands. I mean, so there was a lot of, you know, break you from, in the name of religion that I thought it would be fun to get a nun that that she's sort of the antagonist in the beginning. And then, of course, some, the girls do something to her and every all the cards change. And of course, now they got, you know, Jason to try to somehow defeat if, it, if that's ever even possible but they go they go in fighting didn't know how much i wanted jason Voorhees versus a nun until mm -hmm. just now <laughs> <laughs> so i thank you for that sir is there uh anything you want to plug if you want to tell the people where they can find you if they want to find you um well the other the other side of my personality is rock and roll um as I mentioned, in the 60s, you know, we opened for The Doors, Iron Butterfly, Pink Floyd, so many of the bands. We were kids. Uh, band was called The Sloss. Uh, you know, it kind of died out uh, with all the 60s issues of Manson, you know, the murders here in Los Angeles. You know, now we were like, you know, evil hippie freaks. Jim Morrison died. You know, Janice died. Jimi Hendrix died. Keith Moon died. And I kind of disappeared into studying mime and things to be a better lead singer, but then ended up going into visual comedy and, and performing and, and stuff. So we brought the band back in 2011 because of this little record that the Sloss did sold on eBay for over $6,000, $6,650. So people were like, who are these guys? And one of the guys hired a detective, found all of us who were still alive. Two of the guys had passed on drug related things and we started playing again uh 10 years ago and so the band you know a bunch of guys in their 60s you know we were rocking as hard as we did as teenagers and it gave me a chance to you know perform again and blow up shit on stage and have fire come out of my hands and take aspects of my mind training and costumes and stuff and you know and we have a vinyl album that's out called the back from the grave the sloss and we were going really strong had you know, a tour set and COVID hit. And that basically stopped the band. And I just kept kind of going. Uh, I, I wasn't going to be stopped. So I 
came up with another concept for a band of putting together called Horror Rocks, R-O-X-X, uh, to be basically all the songs that you hear in horror movies from the 50s on. And I mean, there has been, I mean, obviously the simple ones, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, you know, Sympathy for the Devil that was in uh, Interview with a Vampire, and then just tons of great heavy metal stuff. So many, you know, we have like 50 songs, you know, that are there. And my, you know, big, bigger scheme is, you know, to play clips from the movies behind us when we play these things. And it will work for audiences who love those songs, which are great songs. And then us horror geeks, it's like, oh, that's, you know, that, 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 that's, that's from, you know, Pet Cemetery with the Ramones. And so I've got that going. And then another band I just began working with is called Mojo 66. And we're just doing straight up all the songs from 1966 that were turning points in rock and roll music. There were so many, it's just like amazing. You know, everything from obviously Beatles, Stones, but the the Motown scene was was happening. The Secret Agent Man, John, you know, Johnny, it just it, it's so great to do these things that if I've never sang them, we start to play them, and it's like, oh yeah, I you know remember them because you know you heard them on the radio all the time. So that you know that we're getting started as well. So you know all of these things are kind of another side of me like refusing to lay down, you know, I'll rock till I drop. Meanwhile, I've got to get another movie off the ground because it's been now it's been shit 10 years or so since I've done the last thing since the music kind of, you know, took over my life. But, you know, I was hoping that the Friday thing would be the next thing back, um, having wanted to do another one. And of course, now I'm, <laughs> I'm blocked by this thing and we'll see again, you know, where it all goes. All right, I gotta see if I can find that album because that sounds like fun. And as a final collector, I, I do always like to find something new to put on the turntable and support artists. Yeah, oh, yeah. go on Best Spotify. Time. Don't spend no money. Go on Spotify. You can hear the songs to Sloss on there. Uh, go on YouTube, you know, just under Tommy McLaughlin. There's a, we did a couple music videos, uh, one from uh, the Amityville Murders uh, called Haunted that uh, has the band performing as, as well as clips from uh, the movie. And, um, you know, it's just for me, it's like, I just, these two things are kind of what fuel me, you know. I, I like to spend the money, Tom. I like to support the artist because, you know, right. maybe not you, but there are other people that sometimes when you buy their shirt at the show or buy their record, that means they got gas to get to the next town. So sometimes I'm, I'm a big supporter. Of you know, that. I got a, I got a book that Joe Madri did, you know, Strange Idea of Entertainment you know, which you can get on Amazon and different times, different prices for it. But Joe and I see nothing, you know, basically from it, even though it sells, it's like, you know, when it boils down to the, what the authors get or the songwriters get or whatever, it, you know, if you get anything, it's a, it's a blessing. Uh, but it just kind of, you know, you do it for love, you do it for people that love the stuff and, you know, you hopefully make enough that you can, like you said, you know, you know be able to take a bus someplace, you know, to go see a movie. All right, cool. Any social media handles that you want to plug for the people? Um, yeah, uh, uh, TommyMcLaughlin.com um, and uh, Facebook, you know, again, uh, Tommy McLaughlin. I've, I've got a lot of, I've got over five or up to 5,000. So I have to keep looking for who's no longer there so I can keep letting other people in. Uh, but yeah, there's, you know, those two things for sure. And then Instagram, um, I think that's, yeah, I think that's the same. 
and Twitter. Yeah, I mean, it's all just my, you know, usually Tommy McLaughlin. That'll do it. That'll do it. You can check out Spooky Doings Improv on Facebook for information about our comedy shows. Spooky Doings on Instagram. And I'm at Rick Guzman 718 on Twitter. Tom, thank you very much for being on the show. It's a pleasure, pleasure talking to you. I could keep going for hours, but maybe we'll have you back sometime with uh, whatever the next thing is that you feel like talking about and telling right. the audience about. All right, man. Take care. In the meantime, peace. Everybody stay good, stay healthy, and stay spooky. Bye.